The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm with Deborah Brodigan who is Professor and Director of the International Development Program at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. She has recently come out with a terrific book, Will Africa Feed China?, which is truly a wonderful read for those of us who are interested in this subject because she debunks lots of myths that exist about China's relationship with Africa. So let me start off with the question, why this book and why now? I think the question of China's relationship with Africa is one that has a lot of different dimensions. But it seems to me of the all of the things that are most misunderstood about that relationship, the issue of land grabs and Chinese desire to acquire land in Africa for the purpose of growing food to send home to feed the Chinese people, this is something that's very widely believed. And yet there is absolutely no evidence to support this. And that's why I spent three years doing research on this, looking into that question, and will Africa feed China is the result. You deb- what kind of tipped you off? Notice you, obviously you, it's incredibly well-researched and footnoted. But what kind of what started you down the path? Kind of, I look at things in the U.S.-China relationships, and I kind of say, you know, that sounds wrong to me. Is that what happened, Steve? I had a big head start in this because I first went to Africa in 1983 as a sinologist, and I went to study what the Chinese were doing in the rural areas. And so I was very interested in whether or not they were exporting cultural revolution kinds of ideas during that period. I looked at their agricultural aid program. And so I wrote a book on that. It came out in the 1990s. So this was an area in which I already had a pretty good background. And when I started reading about Chinese very large-scale land acquisitions, uh, I thought this doesn't quite fit with what I know about Mm -hmm. how the Chinese operate in Africa. And then I also kept seeing the same stories being recirculated over and over again. And so... I wanted to find out what was going on. What happened with these stories? Uh, was there any truth to them? Was there any reality? So that really involved doing field work. And they seem, these stories, as you describe in the book, they take on a life of their own. Why is that? Is uh, it, it unique to China, or is this just true in academia in every field? You know, Steve, the Internet has allowed what I call now rural legends... <laughs> instead of urban legends, it's really allowed them to to keep on recirculating in ways that I don't think they could before. So something comes out as a headline, and you Google. If you don't know that much about the subject, you Google it, or you Mm -hmm. do some other Bing or some other kind of program. And it comes up over and over again because so many people have hit on it. And so people that that don't know how careful you have to be with the Internet, they just have been collecting these, and then they've been putting them into these databases. So other scholars have actually downloaded this data, which comes from the Internet, from media reports and so on, and they're starting to analyze it and crunch the numbers about who's grabbing land where. 
So these things, uh, they, they really do take on a life of their own. I've also called them zombie cases because they, you think, I think I've written about this, I've blogged about this, I wrote articles about it, and it still keeps coming up. And there it is on CBS News <laughs> on their website. You start off the book, you talk about the four, four falsehoods. Tell us what those four are and why they're false. Well, the first one is that the Chinese have actually acquired a lot of land in Africa. So they haven't. We put together media reports of everything we could find that was over 500 hectares. It would have been 6 million hectares of land. It's about 1% of all the arable land in Africa. And we found that actually from all of those 60 cases, the Chinese had acquired under 250,000 hectares, and that's across 54 countries. So it's not that much land. So that's the first uh, myth. It's a factor of 20 times overstated. It's just, it's really uh, surprisingly wrong. Hmm. The second uh, is that this effort is being led by the Chinese government. And so we looked at all the incentive structure. We looked at what the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Commerce, the, the Chinese banks, what they were telling companies to do. And we didn't see evidence. In fact, we found the opposite. The companies were saying, we really want to get support from the government. They would like to invest. Um, but this leads to the third thing. The third idea is that the purpose of this is to grow food to send back to Africa, I mean to China from Africa. And what we found is that the companies that are going to Africa, they're basically investing in commodities like other companies. They're investing in uh, oil palm or rubber or sisal, cotton, these kinds of things, tobacco. Uh, and there are, is some investment in local food production for local markets, vegetables, even wheat and corn, rice in some instances. But it's not going back to China. We also checked the, the trade data very carefully, and there's just no evidence of these kinds of grain crops going from Africa to China. The fourth part of this conventional wisdom was that they're sending Chinese farmers to do this. So, for example, The Economist had a story at one point where they said that someone had been saying there were a million Chinese farmers in Africa. <laughs> so that's another thing we looked into, who's actually working on these Chinese investments when they do occur, and it's Africans. How have those who have perpetrated those myths reacted to the book? I saw the FT review of the book had a slight comment about, kind of, well, we kind of said this too, as they as the, one of their myths was debunked. I've been very pleased because both the Economist and the FT have uh, paid a lot of attention to the book, and th those were two of the places where these kinds of things had been featured. So that's the kind of audience I'm trying to reach, and I'm pleased that, that they're noticing. So no negative reaction? No, no, no. And that's, why yeah. Do you think, why do you think it happened? In other words, it's quite, it's quite stunning as I read the book. I mean, it, it, it almost reads like a, a forensic novel where, where you're just, you know, you just look, I said, wow, that just amazing. How could it have been so inaccurate? I think we just said it was 20 times off. Yeah. Not 20% off, but 20 times off. Yeah. What? What were people thinking? Was it, is it part of an anti-China kind of a desire to find that China's doing things wrong? Is it just true in everything? And that when the British were in Africa, stuff was equally, or the French were in Africa, stuff was equally as inaccurate? I think in this case, there is a general sense that China has a voracious appetite, and particularly for things African. So, for example, African oil or African copper or African iron ore. And so why not African land as well? 
And it is true that these Chinese companies were very interested in some instances in making investments. Very few of them succeeded because Africa is a very risky place to do agricultural investments. Uh, and some of the companies had very big ideas. So I'll talk about some of those tonight. But um, I do think that most of the people that circulated these were not specialists on China. They weren't specialists even on Africa. They were just people who were interested in this in a superficial way. And one of the things that I've learned uh, in the course of the last few books I've written is how little time journalists have to really do investigative reporting. So they have to turn over an article. They have to get it in by a deadline. The next day, they're working on a completely different topic. So they don't have time to become an expert. And that's why now I have a blog in which I try to, uh, to lay out what's really happening with China and Africa. So it's a mm -hmm. kind of one place people can go to to find data, mm -hmm. find out uh, uh, examples of what we some people think is happening and what the evidence shows. Are there similar blogs for China and Southeast Asia or China and South America or China and other aspects? Because as I read through the book, and it, it really is so clear how and you know the mythologies have developed, and I kept wondering, well, is this true elsewhere? There, there are issues that I work on where I see this. You know, the factual basis of the conclusions is wrong. Forget the conclusions; the factual basis is wrong, um, and it's interesting. I try to think why. I don't think there's any other example of a of a website quite like mine out there, and it really it, it combines a, the desire to be a detective and this investigative reporting. I think if I hadn't become an, a, an academic and a professor, I would have been a reporter because I love doing this kind of thing and really having the time to dig into it and then write it in a lively way with a lot of stories. That was a lot of fun, but not everybody. It takes a, a kind of rare combination of interests and skills, I suppose, to do that. Because I think it, it's so important. Because I mean, not only is it important in terms of Africa, but it's important in terms of the field generally. Because it, you know, we don't have. You know, we obviously have our public intellectuals program. We're trying to get scholars to kind of talk more about yeah. what is going on in the last ten years, as opposed to a thousand years ago. I don't need to tell you, Steve, that the rise of China is the most important geopolitical issue of this century, and understanding what's going on and getting it right is really important. Africa's not hugely important for China, uh, but it is a place in which this perception of threat is very intense, and it's been reported like that in the West. And I really want to help get that story uh, corrected. Talk about U.S. interests and Chinese interests in Africa, and how much are they conflicting, and how much are they complementary? It's interesting. I'd say about 10 years ago, um, the U.S. was very much positioning, at least the U.S. government, was very much positioning our interests as being about um, aid. So we were putting in $10 billion of aid, and then there was the oil as well. So we were, at, on the one hand, we were very altruistic. Our relationship with Africa was based on aid, uh, and, and it was often portrayed that way uh, in the pronouncements of our top leaders. But at the other end, we were talking about the oil and how we were concerned about China maybe um, going after this oil very aggressively. That's completely changed now. Instead of portraying our relationship with Africa as being just about aid, uh, now the government is talking about the commercial possibilities there and how they want to help companies do things like power Africa. They want to help agribusiness companies get more involved in Africa. And uh, at the same time, our desire for African oil has plummeted due to the shale gas revolution right. here at home. 
So we're not so concerned about Chinese acquisition of oil fields in Africa. Is there a way that we can cooperate? The United States and China can cooperate better in Africa. This is turning. This is turning out to be a real challenge. Um, I've been talking to people at USAID and in the government about this for a long time. I'd say eight, eight or nine years. Um, and there have been various discussions between different parts of the U.S. government, different parts of the Chinese government. And it's only been recently that they've actually signed an MOU to try to do something together. And I understand just in the last few weeks that they're actually coming up with a plan for something that would be done together with the Ministry of Commerce and uh, our U.S. Agency for International Development. And this came about through Xi Jinping's recent visit to Washington in which this MOU was signed at a high level. Mm-hmm. So I do think it took interest on the part of, of that of the two leaders and then the, the people right beneath them to actually make this happen. Because the, face it, there are a lot of concerns. I remember being down at USAID and they said to me, one of our biggest concerns is the Hill because we have to be careful about how we partner with China because we don't want to get blowback for the administration up on the Hill. So these things are delicate, and the same kinds of concerns are present in Beijing. Yes. Last question. What does this kind of tell you about China and the world? What does their policy in Africa tell you about their their, What lessons are there for China's relationship to the rest of the world? I think there are really two lessons. And the first is that... uh, in terms of perception of what the Chinese are doing, the Chinese could be a lot more transparent about this. Um, they could be, um, they could publicize what they're doing a little better. Uh, I remember going to the Ministry of Agriculture and, and uh, the official I was talking to there said, you know, we don't really know what our companies are doing in Africa. This kind of thing is really hard for us to research. And uh, I had to agree with him. It's not easy at all. So uh, positioning what they're doing a little more transparently. And then I have to say that there are still quite a few issues. Uh, When investments do happen, Chinese companies still tend to uh, put into the contract that if they are getting land, the land must come unencumbered. And so they devolve this to the host government. So they're the ones that have to unencumber the land. So we did see a few cases. There weren't very many, but there were a few in which people were being moved off the land, mm-hmm. um, whether they had legal rights to be there or not. They were still being moved um, in a way that created a lot of unhappiness. And, and uh, this is a problem, I think. And if agricultural investment does rise, and I do think it will rise because it's so low right now, it's got to go up, mm-hmm. that this will continue to be a challenge. I have with me Deborah Brodigan, who has just written, Will Africa Feed China? It is a must-read. It is a wonderfully clear book which deals with, debunks some mythologies that exist about China's relationship with Africa Thank you for writing the book, and thank you for being a director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you, Steve.